first three verses. The Bible says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's go ahead and read verse 4 too. Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, when you go to study any book of the Bible, there's a few things that you need to go ahead and settle before you ever dive into it. The first thing you need to understand before you study the book of the Bible, and sometimes you may have to do a little studying before you can go back and study, but this is where commentaries and, and books and study Bibles will help us, is you need to establish what the theme of the particular book is that you're reading. Every book of the Bible has a theme to it, an overall truth and intent. Even the historical books of the Old Testament, uh, they're, not, they're not history books, they're historical books. And you say, well, preacher, what's the difference? Well, their history is more accurate than any history book uh, across the planet. There's no question. But the intent of them is not solely just to present a, a, a historical narrative. The intent is to reveal something to us about God and His personality and His working, His plan for humanity. Well, every book of the Bible has a theme to it. The book of Hebrews, if we could sum up the theme for it, it's what we've titled uh, this study, is it can be summed up in two words, better things. Uh, whenever, uh, and we'll say a word about who the author is here in a little while, but I, I'm going to go ahead and say when Paul wrote Hebrews, okay? Uh, and uh, I believe that, and it'd just be a lot easier than me having to dance around and figure out some politically correct way to include everybody's opinion about it. So I'm just going to say when Paul wrote Hebrews, and I'll defend that here in just a minute. When Paul writes the book of Hebrews, his theme is to show us that Christ is better than the Old Testament system, than the Old Testament sacrifice, than the Old Testament priesthood, that the new covenant, this way of grace, this age of grace that we're in, is a better system than the Old Testament system that was exemplified in the, in the words and rituals of the law. And the intent is uh, to show us that in Christ we have everything we could need and everything we could hope for. And Paul is going to systematically walk through and, and grab the major elements of the Old Testament law and show us how that Christ is better than all of those things. Now, another important thing when you're studying the book of the Bible is to have an understanding of who the audience is. Uh, we're going to say a word about who the author is here in a second, but uh, I would say the greatest disconnect in people studying the Bible is not understanding who the intended audience is. Who is this being written to and why? Now, I'm a dispensationalist. That means that I believe, and, and I don't just believe I know it to be true. I don't mean that to sound arrogant, but I know it's true. That God dealt with humanity in different ways in different time periods. And that the Word of God presents to us that overall scope of God's dealings with humanity. Now, part and parcel for that is this understanding. That all these portions of the Word of God, every portion of the Word of God, have an intended audience. Now, there's also an included audience. You say, who's that included audience? Well, you and I are always in the included audience. We're God's children. We're God's people. But that does not necessarily mean we are the intended audience of every single portion of the Word of God. And what I mean by that is you go through the Old Testament prophetic books, and you can see it's obvious that uh, nine times out of ten, God's speaking to Israel. Now, I'm not a Jew. I'm a Gentile. 
I, I cannot claim the earthly promises that the Jews can claim. Uh, there is great damage done to the interpretation and understanding of the Word of God when we when you remove the Jew from Scripture. Uh, and there's a lot of people that have done that throughout history. They tried to make you know uh, the the English people uh, Jews or or white people Jews or whatever it might be, and they do damage to Scripture by doing this. Uh, when God's talking about the Jewish people and, and the nation of Israel, He's talking about a specific group of people, a body of people, uh, and that is earthly Jews. And uh, even though those Old Testament books, they're not written to them. They're written to the Jews during the Old Testament. By the same token, there are things in the Bible that pertain particularly to uh, people during the millennial period that's coming when Christ is upon His throne. And it's not written to you and me. But now let me say this. All of the Bible, though it's not written to us, it is all written for us. Meaning that we can glean truth and there's an application that can be made and there is wisdom that can be drawn from every portion of the Word of God. So it's key that you understand when you go to study with the Bible, who's this being written to? Who, who is in mind here? Uh, the book of Hebrews is uh, one of several that we call Hebrew Christian epistles, or Jewish Christian epistles. And the intended audience, if I could just describe who this person would be, the intended audience is a Jew that is at the door of salvation. There are times when it seems like he's not walked through that door yet when you read through the book of Hebrews. There are other times when it seems like he's already crossed the threshold and he's accepted Christ in the book of Hebrews. Now, you know, people could argue for ages about, you know, what particular passages do they apply to and this, that, and the other. I'm not interested in wasting a lot of time arguing about things. I want to present you with truth. But one thing I think we can safely say is this. That the book of Hebrews is written to Jews during the New Testament period who are faced with the reality of Calvary and must reconcile that with the Old Testament system that they have grown up with and that they are familiar with. That's who Paul is writing to. And so that's important to understand for a number of reasons. One of the reasons it's important to understand, this goes on to the next point, is when you're studying the book of the Bible, it's important you have a good grasp of who the author is to the best of your ability. There are some portions of the Bible that we don't know who wrote that particular book of the Bible, and that's okay that we don't know who wrote that book of the Bible. We don't really know who wrote, for instance, the book of Ruth. Uh, some people believe it was Ruth. Some people believe it was the same person that pinned down first and second Samuel. I do not know who wrote the book of Ruth. I know at the end of the day that God wrote the book of Ruth. Amen? And uh, so that's important to know. Most of the New Testament books of the Bible, there is a signature that is given. Uh, there is no signature given for the book of Hebrews. Now, there's a lot of debate, and I'm not going to waste a lot of time on it, about who wrote the book of Hebrews. Some people say that Luke wrote the book of Hebrews. I find that very unlikely. Uh, Luke was a Gentile, and he would have been less familiar with the things of the Old Testament Levitical system than, than just about any other candidate. Some people believe that Barnabas wrote the book of Hebrews. Barnabas was both a Jew and a Levite. But there's no external evidence or internal scriptural evidence that Barnabas wrote. Some people believe Apollos wrote it, but I find no scriptural evidence for that either. I do find little bits and pieces that lead me to believe that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Now, again, you're going to find good people who disagree with this. But I'm going to give you a few reasons that I believe that. Number one, I believe that because of the phrasing that's used throughout the book of Hebrews. Uh, you know, it's interesting because one of the things that people will point to is they'll say, well, there's language in here that Paul never used. That's true. There is language in here that Paul never used. Things are phrased in certain ways that you won't find in any of the other Pauline epistles. But what's significant to me is not as much that there are phrases that Paul never used, but that there are a lot of phrases that Paul often used. 
I can account for why there would be some phrases that Paul did not use normally, but I can't account for why anybody other than Paul could have written this book and there'd be all these phrases that Paul used over and over again in these themes that he used over and over again, certain scriptures that he quoted. I'll tell you why I believe that Paul wrote the book, or why I believe there are differences between this book and Paul's other writings, because in none of Paul's other writings is he writing particularly to Jewish people. Uh, Paul was the apostle of the Gentiles, right? Peter was the apostle of the Jews. Paul was the apostle of the Gentiles. Uh, but Paul always had love and desire for the Jewish people. <clears throat> he talked about this in the book of Romans. He said that, that his heart's desire is that he'd be accursed, that uh, Israel might be saved, uh, that he'd do anything he could. And, and really, in some ways, tripped him up at times. Because there were times when God was leading him towards Gentiles, and he was going as hard as he could to try to win Jews to Christ. And it even caused him some problems in his uh, ministry there in the, the book of Acts. So uh, I, I can see why there would be some statements. Paul had never written to a group of Jewish people exclusively. Most of the time he's writing to a mixed multitude of Jews and Gentiles when he wrote to the New Testament churches. But it makes sense to me that there might be some phrases that aren't found in Paul's other epistles but are found here, especially relating to the Jewish people and to the Jewish faith. I'll give you another reason I believe the Apostle Paul wrote it. And that's because uh, it's been pretty much accepted testimony from early days in the New Testament church that Paul was the person that wrote it. Now, external or extra-scriptural evidence, that's not the ultimate authority. The Word of God is the ultimate authority. But we've got to be careful, too, because there's a tendency sometimes to just throw that out the window. I mean, listen, most of us in here, we believe that Napoleon lived, right? We believe he suffered a defeat at Waterloo. The Bible doesn't say nothing about that, right? But there's historical evidence. And so, while we should never take historical evidence above scriptural evidence, I don't think we should throw out the, the veracity and, and the authenticity of historical evidence if there's no reason to do so. Give you another reason, and it's found in the very last chapter of the book of Hebrews, but Timothy is mentioned. Uh, in fact, to my knowledge, the only proper name that's mentioned in the entire book of Hebrews is, uh, is Timothy's name. There in chapter number 13 and uh, verse number 23, the Bible says, Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom if he comes shortly, I will see you. So I, I believe that, you know, Timothy, of course, traveled with Paul, spent time with Paul. I, I, it's not to say that Peter didn't know Timothy, but Peter did not spend time with Timothy. Uh, Barnabas wouldn't have, Apollos wouldn't have, Luke wouldn't have, in the same way that Paul would have. So there's a few reasons I believe that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Now let me give you a good answer. If somebody ever nails you down and says, I want an answer. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? Well, his name is mentioned, first word in the entire book. The Bible says God, who at sundry times in the divine manner spake in time past unto Father by the prophets. And you know, I think that's important because it shows us something about the character of the book of Hebrews. It's important that we understand that all scriptures give by inspiration of God. But to the Jewish individual, it was particularly important that they understand this wasn't coming from Paul, wasn't coming from Luke or from Barnabas or from Apollos. This was God Himself declaring these truths concerning His own Son. Now, I've already... I, see right there at that mark? That says 815 and we need to start. So I've got to hurry. But uh, let, 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 me just, let me just say this tonight, that, that to the Jew... You see, you and I, I hope in ways that our mind's made up. We know Jesus is the Son of God. We know Calvary's the only answer. But to the Jew that would have been reading this New Testament epistle, he has two choices. He can either believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that He is the culmination and fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, and that the entire system He's been brought up under 
has been culminated and finished and done away with and put away with in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or he believed what the Jewish leaders of that day believed, which was that Jesus was a charlatan, that Jesus was a heretic, that Jesus had just tried to deceive people, and that his uh, his weakness and his uh, his uh, fraudness, uh, fakeness, was displayed by the fact that he was crucified and then his disciples stole his body away. So they have two opposing views that they have to uh, they have to examine. What are they going to believe? And I think when you consider that, it's important for them to understand that when you're talking about Jesus, you're talking about the Son of God. And when you're talking about these truths, you're talking about God Himself relating these truths to humanity. So it's important to understand what the theme of the book is. It's better things. Who the audience of the book is. And that's Jewish people uh, right at the door of salvation, possibly just newly saved. And they're being exhorted to go on and to trust God and to stay firm in the faith. We need to understand to a degree who the author is. And I believe there's a lot of evidence for the Apostle Paul. But if that don't satisfy you, just take comfort knowing that God is the author of the book of Hebrews. Now, there's one more important thing I want to share with you before we jump into this. I know I'm already running behind in time. As you read through the book of Hebrews, you might sense, a lot of people have and I have, that there's almost a little bit of a choppiness or a scatteredness in the book of Hebrews. You'll be going along a vein of thought, and then all of a sudden it seems like you're halted to a stop as you're reading through the book of Hebrews. It's almost like your attention is arrested away from this singular line of, th- of logic that Christ is better and, and all these better things. And the reason for that is because as you look through the book of Hebrews, there are five parenthetical passages found in the book of Hebrews. Each of these five passages present a warning in light of the truth that has just been given. I'm going to give you these references. If you've got a, a, a pen, you ought to jot these down real quick. The first warning we'll talk about tonight, and it's found in chapter number 2, verses 1 through 4. The second warning that's given is uh, found in chapter number 3, verse 7, up through chapter 4 and verse 13. The third warning that's given is in chapter number 5, starts at verse 11, and goes through chapter 6 and verse number 20. The fourth warning that is given starts at chapter 10, verse 26, and goes through verse number 39 of the same chapter. And then the final warning that's given is in chapter 12. It's warning number 5. It's in chapter 12. Starts at verse 15, goes through verse 29. Now, all the book of Hebrews is inspired. It's all important. We need to read all of it. And don't misconstrue what I'm about to say as to suggest otherwise. But try to take time to sit down and read the book of Hebrews and deliberately skip over those warnings. And notice how fluid the logic is. Then... Go back and read each of those warnings singularly in and of themselves. And you'll, I believe it will give you a better grasp of two things. One, of where those warnings fit in the overall logic of the book as it's being presented. But two, it will help you to better understand those particular passages. Because uh, I think without debate, those passages tend to be the most difficult passages in the book of Hebrews. And there's a context with which they must be understood. But I think if you can somehow compartmentalize those for a moment, read through, and get a good grasp of where they are and what they are, then go back and read the book of Hebrews again and plug them back in and see them in that context, I believe it will help you as you read through the book of Hebrews. All right, so we're going to begin. We're going to basically uh, follow uh, two simple veins of thought tonight. Or one, excuse me, one simple vein of thought. Uh, the first is that uh, Christ is superior in His majesty as the Son of God. Now, we've already read these three verses, but I want you to notice them with me. The Bible says, God, who at sundry times and divers manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, 
has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Notice first off, the expression of the sonship of Christ by God. This is God's statement about who Christ is. Now remember, the overall thing is better things. And so it begins by saying this. God at one time spoke to humanity in a myriad of different ways. Uh, it says this. He spoke in times past in divers manners unto the fathers by the prophets. Uh, there were times when God walked in the cool of the day with Adam and spoke directly to him. There were times when God spoke through uh, <coughs> mediators, through prophets, uh, people like Samuel and people like Isaiah and people like Daniel in the Old Testament. There were times when God uh, spoke himself directly to uh, mankind, to humanity, just like he did with uh, Abraham on Mount Sinai. God has communicated with humanity in lots of different ways. And you find this all through your Bible. But in these days, those were good ways, but now God has spoken unto us in the best way, and that's through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice first off that he expounds the mind of God in verse number 1 and verse number 2. He had in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. If you were to, and one person put it this way, that, uh, that Jesus Christ is God in focus. The Bible teaches this clearly, that there is the written word and there is the living word. Now, the written word, of course, is this Bible that we have in front of us tonight. But the Bible teaches us also that not only is there a written word, but a living word, and that living word is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the Bible says in John chapter number 1, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. The Bible says down in verse 14 of that same chapter, the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld His glory, His glory, like as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I would express it in this manner, that the written Word, meaning the Word of God, the Bible that we hold in our hands, inspired, preserved, inerrant, infallible, this Bible, is uh, the written Word of God, Jesus is the living Word, and they are synonymous and harmonious in nature. You say, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, I think it's obvious to everyone that this that I hold in my hand is a book and not a person. Uh, it doesn't have to be fed. It doesn't have to sleep. It doesn't have to rest. Obviously, this is, and, and there's a sense in which the Bible is living. It's quick and powerful. But this is the written word. Jesus is the living word. I don't believe that Jesus was just a, a six foot, I don't know how tall Jesus was. Don't get into numerology with me. But uh, let's say he was six foot tall. I don't know that Jesus was a six foot tall. In fact, I know he wasn't a six foot tall Bible walking around, right? He was, he was uh, God and he was man. He was the man Christ Jesus. He would have looked like a human being. Uh, his body would have been a human body. At least to some degree, we understand that. But they always harmonize in truth, intent, in purpose, and in message. Jesus never said or did anything contradictory to the Word of God. And the Word of God in nowhere speaks of anything contradictory to who and what Jesus was and what He did. Uh, the Bible describes it this way. It says that in Him was no sin, that He knew no sin, that He did no sin. There's nothing in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that walks or runs or speaks contrary to the truth of the Word of God. But now let me go a step further and say this. Now we understand, I think most of us, we grasp that truth. But God in speaking to humanity had spoken in a lot of ways. But he can never fully communicate his heart and his mind and his love and his interest in humanity in quite a sufficient way as he could as to send his son to live upon this earth. 
See, it's one thing to uh, to hear that God loves humanity. It's another thing for Christ to walk amongst and to heal and to raise up those that were sick. It's one thing for God to say that He uh, that He had sympathy. You know, the psalmist talks about uh, what is man that thou art mindful of him. It's one thing for God to say that He takes interest in humanity. That's good. But what greater way could God express His interest in humanity than by Christ walking amongst humanity? In the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have something far superior to the Old Testament prophets. They could have the will and mind of God related to them, and then they could express that will and mind that was related to them. But the mind of Christ and the mind of God are synonymous. They are one. When Christ spoke, He spoke with authority of God because He was God and He is God. So we notice, number one, that He expounds the mind of God. Let me say number two, that He executes the will of God. Look at the end of verse number two. The Bible says, And He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had died Himself, purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. I want you to notice two things about this. Number one, I want you to notice that He has an inherited claim to all things. Now, when we talk about inheritance, what we're saying is someone has a title deed given by a benefactor unto them for all things. And isn't that what the Bible says? That he's spoken unto us by his Son, whom he, speaking of God, God has appointed Christ heir of all things. He's better than the Old Testament prophets because he wasn't just bearing a message to humanity, but he is the one for whom all of humanity exists. When you looked at an Old Testament prophet, you were looking at a messenger sent from God. But when you looked at Christ, you were looking at the Messiah of God. The one whom everything around us was created for, for His glory, for His purpose, for His satisfaction, for His pleasing. So He has an inherited claim to all things. Then notice number two, He has an inherent claim to all things. All things belong unto Him because the Father has appointed Him the heir of all things, but all things also belong to Him because He created all things. In verse 2, by whom also He made the worlds. When Christ walked up and down this world, He was walking in a world of His own. He created all things. The Colossians describes to us this way, uh, that uh, the Bible says that all things were made by Him and for Him. And all Hebrews does is flip that around, right? Uh, all things were made for Him. He's appointed the heir of all things, but also all things were made by Him. Has ever dawned on you? Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus Christ, He came unto His own, His own received Him not? Foxes have their holes, and the birds of the air have their nests, and the Son of Man hath not where to lay His head. When He died, He died in a bar, and He was buried in a borrowed tomb. Uh, when uh, when he walked amongst this earth, he spent most of his time staying with friends and in their homes. Uh, the very creator of all the earth lived as pauper, did not lay claim during his earthly ministry to any parcel of land. Why? Well, there's two reasons. One, I believe because he was a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief. He didn't come to live lavishly. He came to die for our sins. I believe the second reason is this, because he owned all of it. It all belonged to him. I believe because of what he is. He is the creator. I believe verse number three because of who he is. He being the or who being the brightness of God's glory. This is interesting. The Bible has a lot to say about brightness. You know, uh, the Bible talks about the brightness that Moses observed when he was on Mount Sinai. It was so much when he came off the mountain, his face glowed, and they had to put a veil over his face. The Bible talks about Jesus calls him the Son of Righteousness. 
uh, the bright and morning star. Uh, the Bible talks about the brightness that Paul saw when he was on the road to Damascus. And whenever uh, he spoke to that brightness, and that brightness spoke to him, uh, he, he, you know, you remember that uh, Paul cried out and said, Who art thou? He said, I am he, uh, I am Jesus Christ. He said, uh, it's hard for me to kick against the bricks. I am he who now persecutes. I am Jesus Christ. Uh, Christ is the, the effusion of God's glory. To see Christ is to see, and not that there's any bad in God. I understand God is light and there's no darkness at all. But to see Christ is to see all of the glory of who God is. You know, our God is a wrathful God. Right? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God's angry with the wicked every day, right? And there's coming a day when Christ will return in power and glory and His vesture will be dipped in blood. I understand He's coming back in judgment. But when God spoke to this world through His Son, through the earthly ministry of His Son, through the first advent, when He came, He showed the love of God, the compassion of God, the tenderness of God. He's the brightness of God's glory. He expresses or he expounds the mind of God. He executes the will of God. Notice he also expresses the heart of God. Now how did he do this? Look what it says in verse number 3. The Bible says he is the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Let me say there's two ways that the heart of God is expressed in the person of Christ. Number one, as Christ is crucified, the heart of God is expressed. He by himself purged our sins. Now, in the Old Testament, you know, a lot of the Old Testament prophets suffer. Especially you go, when the Bible goes down to the laundry list in uh, Hebrews chapter 11 about how the Old Testament saints suffered and were persecuted. They, they hid in caves and in mountains and they were sawn asunder. The Bible says, of whom the world was not worthy. I think immediately about Isaiah and Jeremiah. I don't know if you realize this, but, uh, well, in Ezekiel too. Do you know that Isaiah, you studied through the book of Isaiah, and for a period, I think it was three and a half years. I might be wrong about that. But for a pretty long period of time, the Bible says that Isaiah walked around naked in humiliation to show the Jewish people how that they had been humiliated before God and how God was troubled with their sin. The Bible says in Ezekiel, now this is going to, you might have a weak stomach. It's my turn your stomach, I don't know. The Bible says that uh, Ezekiel, uh, God commanded him to bake a loaf of bread with cow to express how God was disgusted at their sin. Jeremiah, of course, was known as the weeping prophet. Uh, Jeremiah, all through the pages of the prophecy of Jeremiah and of the Lamentations that he wrote, you find they're just tear-stained with this heartbrokenness. Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel both were rejected as prophets. They were hated. They were despised. Their message was not heeded, was not listened to. Let me say that there was never a prophet, there was never an Old Testament saint, nor a New Testament saint, that has ever done for you and I what Jesus Christ did for us. They expressed the heart of God and His displeasure with sin, there's no doubt, but never could they fully express it the way Jesus did. I'm often reminded one of my favorite books of the Bible is the book of Hosea. And, you know, I love the first three chapters, you know, where it's talking about how Hosea takes over to be his wife, and she's the wife of court, and she runs around on him, and everything has children that don't belong to him, and everything, his heart's broken, and how does she leaves, and he goes, he buys her back on the auction block and everything. Man, what a picture of love of God. But I think the thing I love most about the book of Hosea is not those first three chapters, it's the rest of the book. And the reason is because of this. I actually learned this when I was teaching through the Minor Prophets in this Apollo's course. I've never understood why the book of Hosea was so scattered. It seems like one minute God's 
trying to woo Israel and tell them how much you love them. And the next minute, uh, you know, uh, God's telling Israel that judgment's coming and he's going to fall with a swift hammer of wrath upon them. And uh, a commentator explained this, but I've never forgotten. He said, imagine Hosea as he lay in bed at night, thinking, dreading, with nightmarish apprehension, what Hosea was up to. He rolls over on one side and he thinks to himself, if she'd just come home, I'd love her, I'd treat her right. He rolls over on the other side and thinks, I don't want anything to do with her. She's polluted, she's corrupted, she's vile. He rolls over on the other side and says, but she's the mother of my child and I love her and I care about her. He rolls over on the other side and back and forth he goes as his heart is rent in two by by Gomer's skin. You know, I think that's a pretty good picture of how God feels about our sin. He's disgusted by our sin, but He loves us. He's troubled by how we're living, but His heart is knit to us through the cross of Calvary. I think Hosea is a pretty good expression of the love of God. But if you really want to know what God's love looks like, go to Calvary. Because there you'll find the ultimate sacrifice and the ultimate expression. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God commended His love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God expressed His love towards us. So I think Christ expresses the heart of God as Christ crucified. But now there's the flip side of that. We know how God feels about fallen man when we look at that. We know the heart of God towards fallen man. But what about the heart of God towards His Son? Look at the last part of that verse. What happened after He by Himself purged our sins? He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. We learn through the ministry and work of the Lord Jesus Christ just how God feels about sinners and just how God feels about His Son. All through the Old Testament, there were prophecies given about how Christ would uh, would uh, die for our sins, He'd be resurrected, He'd ascend up into glory, and these prophecies are often intermingled with millennial prophecies that picture Christ on His throne, how that Christ is going to reign in righteousness and in perfection, and the prophets, they could talk about it. But in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see that realized. We see that He has defeated death. He has overcome the grave. He has wiped away, washed away our sins. Uh, he has conquered that which had conquered us. And He's ascended to glory a victor. And He sat down on the right hand of God, accepted in the presence of God. And the work that He's done has been sufficient. We know exactly how God feels about Christ when we consider where He's at right now. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. We know how God feels about the work of Calvary right now because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. If Calvary hadn't been sufficient, if there had been even the slightest little molecule of our sin stain left upon His righteousness, He could not sit at the right hand of God. But He fully exhausted sin's ugliness. He fully paid sin's penalty. He fully washed away sin's stain. And His righteousness exhausted our unrighteousness in the judgment and wrath of God. And He sits accepted at the right hand of the Father. And that's where God wants Him to be. That's where God wants Him to be. I skipped over the... I want to say a word about it because I just can't... I know we're not going to be back this way uh, through this study. Can I back up and say a word about what it says about... Uh, verse number 3. The Bible says, in the brightness of His glory, we said a word about that. Look at the next phrase, in the express image of His person. I told you a moment ago that Christ is God in focus. If we want to get a picture of who God is, we look at Christ and get a picture of Him. Now, the Old Testament prophets couldn't do this. Uh, the Old Testament, and, and by the way, when we talk about the Old Testament, we're talking about the prophets, but we're also talking about the priesthood, the types, the pictures, the sacrifices in the Old Testament. They could give us a vague idea of who God is. But when we look at the ministry of Christ, we're seeing exactly who God is. 
You remember whenever Philip said to the Lord, he uh, said, show us the Father and suffice with us. And the Lord answered him very interestingly. He said, Philip, have I been so long with you and yet thou hast not known me? I would imagine that's the point where you would have just hushed and hung your head. I don't know. But uh, Christ looked at him and he said this, Philip, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. One commentator said it this way, that if you were to take the image of Lord Jesus Christ and draw it out with infinite lines, you'd see a picture of who God is. Uh, he was the express image of the Father. Uh, and the Bible says this in upholding all things by the word of his power. The power of Christ is the power of God. The power of God, when he was robed in flesh and called Jesus Christ, was not diminished even in the least. Now some will say, the preacher, uh, weren't there times when Christ uh, did not exert or exercise his power? Absolutely there were. Good, a good example to me is Luke chapter 4, when he's being tempted in the wilderness by Satan. He, listen, he spoke Satan into existence. He could have spoken out of existence. Uh, he most certainly could have commanded the, uh, the stones to be made in loaves of bread. He chose not to do that. He, he, he forewent the power of his deity that he might provide an example to you and I. But the power of Christ was not in the least bit diminished simply because he was robed in flesh. He upholds all things by the word of his power. His power is God's power. So, uh, we finally got about... 20 minutes late to the place I was wanting to get to. So, uh, we see in the expression of the sonship of Christ by God. Woman fashion is the part. Notice not only the expression of the sonship of Christ by God, but notice the examples of the sonship of Christ in Scripture. Now, one of the things I love, 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 love about the book of Hebrews is if probably, and I don't know, I might be wrong, I, I, this is not an educated statement, all right? This is destiny. But I would venture to say that probably the book of Hebrews, more than any other New Testament book, by percentage at least, quotes the Old Testament. Over and over and over again, we find the writer going back and pointing the Old Testament Scriptures and drawing a line straight to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because remember, he's speaking to Jews. And Jews, they accept the Old Testament Scripture, but they did not accept the New Testament witness. And so what he's doing is showing them through the Old Testament how that Christ is the Messiah. I want you to notice a few things that said about it. Number one, notice that his excellent name is spoken of in verses 4 and 5. Uh, remember, this is the first time we see this word better. It's a theme all through the book of Hebrews, so take extra careful note of it. The Bible says, "...being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For in which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son." This day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now this is important to understand. You've got to place yourself in the shoes of an Old Testament Jew. This whole concept of sonship, of the Son of God. Now there was a sense in which they considered themselves sons of God. There was a sense in which they considered themselves gods themselves. And Christ spoke of that. He spoke about the book of Psalms when the Bible says, ye are, you know, ye are gods. Uh, so there was a sense in which they believed that. But they didn't explicitly believe that God had a son. That they, they didn't understand explicitly. They were monotheistic, and we are too. But they, I don't know that they really grasped the concept of the Trinity, as it were. And this idea that God had a son was pretty foreign to them. And so the writer of Hebrews is very careful to go back and point to the sonship of Christ. Now, one of the things a Jew would have said about the Old Testament system is he would have said, how dare we mess with the Old Testament system? Don't you know it was given by angels? Uh, all through the Old Testament, you'll find angels present over and over again, far more often in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. 
There's reasons for that, by the way, because now we've got the Son. Amen? But all through the Old Testament, you'll find angels present. When the law was given, there were angels present. I don't know if you realize that. Uh, the Bible talks about it in the book of Exodus, I believe it's chapter number 23 or 24, uh, about the throne room of God sitting down there, there being angels around Sinai and so on and so forth. Uh, there were angels of annunciation in, uh, in the Old Testament. There's a few angels that are mentioned. You know, Of course, Lucifer was an angel in the Old Testament. He fell and became Satan. Michael is another angel that's mentioned throughout Scripture. His name means who is like God. Uh, Gabriel is another uh, angel that's uh, mentioned in the Old Testament. He was the angel of annunciation. He, he announced the birth of Christ. His name uh, means man of God. And all through the Old Testament you'll find all these angels. And no doubt a Jew would have looked at this argument being presented and be saying this, but don't you know that angels attended the giving of the Old Testament law? Don't you know the Shekinah glory of God set down on the temple? Don't you know that in the Old Testament, uh, God had angels smite down Sennacherib, the Assyrian uh, emperor? Don't you know that God has validated the Old Testament system through angels? And the writer of Hebrews says to that, well, that's true. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have someone far better than the angels of the Old Testament. Michael was the military, the archangel. He was the powerful angel. His name means who is like God. But that's nothing compared to God himself being robed in flesh. Gabriel is the messenger of God. But Jesus, he's not just the messenger of God. He's the message of God. He's God expressed to humanity. Uh, Lucifer was the anointed cherub that covered, the Bible calls him. And of course, he fell, he became Satan. But even in his most magnificent state, he might have been the anointed cherub. But Jesus is the anointed Son of God. He is far better than the angel. I hear, you hear people talk sometimes about angels. They'll say, well, you know, somebody saw an angel or felt an angel. And I don't argue with people about I never have, uh, other than my wife. Yeah. I'm recording this, so I can play it back later. I, I, I've never seen one. I, and listen, if you have, that's fine. I'm not going to argue with you. That, that's your business. But, but I will say this. That's great if you've seen an angel. My chief question is, have you met the Son of God? You can see whatever angels you want to see. And you go back to the old days, Balaam saw an angel, right? And uh, there's not much more wicked of a man in the Old Testament than Balaam, the false prophet. Balaam saw an angel. But uh, the question is, have you seen the Son? Have you met Him? He has a more excellent name. I want you to notice about this name, where this name came from. Look at verse number 5. For under which the angel said at any time, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is interesting. These are two Old Testament quotes. The first is from Psalms chapter 2, verse number 7. Psalms chapter 2 is a messianic psalm, meaning it's talking about the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And particularly, it's talking about his second advent when he comes in power and glory. But verse number 7 is speaking particularly about the resurrection. The second uh, phrase that's given, quote that's given, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, is from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. And uh, that relates to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ and when he would be incarnated. Do you know that angels will have and will attend all three of those instances? There were angels when he was born. They announced his birth from heaven. There were angels when he rose from the dead. They announced his resurrection. And there will be angels that attend unto him in the millennium when he sits upon his throne. So the point that the Hebrews writer is pointing to is this. They may have attended, but he's the one they were attending to. He's the message. He's the substance of it all. Notice not only his excellent name, but notice his earthly fame. Verse number 6. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten of the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. 
Angels are good, but don't forget that the angels were worshiping Christ at his birth. And of the angels, verse 7, he saith, he maketh his angel spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Saying, after all, angels are just ministers. And the one whom they are ministering to and for is the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't ever lose sight of that. Don't ever lose sight of Despite all of the supernatural, quote-unquote, experiences we might have, and I'm not necessarily, again, I'm listening. I believe, I believe in faith, but it's good when you can feel your faith too. Amen? I'm not against those things. But don't ever lose sight of what we've been given in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, it's good to feel something, but it's a lot better to be saved by His grace. Uh, listen, I mean, it's good to have a supernatural experience. God bless you. That's wonderful. But the greatest supernatural experience that ever took place in your life is when you were translated from the power and kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. That's the greatest thing that's ever happened. His earthly fame is spoken of. His eternal claim is spoken of. We're going to have to hurry through this one. Look at verses 8 and 9. The glory of Christ's person is spoken of. The Bible says, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Now there's seven things mentioned here. I want you to notice real quick. First off, Christ's sovereignty is spoken of. The Bible says he's sovereign. It says in verse number 8, Thy throne, O God. So Christ is better than the angels, better than the Old Testament system. Why? Because he's the king that's coming to sit upon the throne. Notice number two, his deity is spoken of. This is interesting. But under the sun he saith, Thy throne, O God. Now this is God speaking. And when he's speaking to the sun, he says, Thy throne, O God. So God himself calls Christ, the Son of God, God as well. His deity is spoken of. Listen, it don't get much higher. It don't get much more authority than being God himself. And his dynasty is spoken of this. It says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, I wish I really had time to dig into this, and I know I don't. But uh, in the Old Testament, uh, for uh, about two centuries, the, the kingdom was split in two. You had the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribes of, uh, of Judah and uh, of Benjamin. And uh, there had been uh, several in the north. There had been, I think, like 18 kings of nine different dynasties. In the south, there had only been one dynasty. There had been a number of kings, but both of those dynasties passed away. They didn't rule and reign forever. But the Son of God, He's far superior to that. Why? Because His throne will endure forever and ever. His authority is spoken of next. The Bible says, a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. A king holds a scepter, and that scepter in, uh, it, it uh, symbolizes his authority over his kingdom. And Christ has, and we've already talked about it, an inherent claim and an inherited claim to all things. He has authority over the world that's around us. His integrity is spoken of. Uh, what kind of a sector is it? It's a sector of righteousness. The political policy of the millennial kingdom, you know what it's going to be? Righteousness. Wasn't that going to be nice? Not what you can get away with, not what you can buy and bribe and barter away from people, but what's right, what's upright, what's righteous. Is going to be the policy of his kingdom. Let me say that's far better than what we've got now. That's far better than what the Jews had in the Old Testament. That's far better than anything. They had sort of a theocracy in the Old Testament. I've had people ask me before, Preacher, what do you think about government? What do you think? I think the best thing fallen man can hope for is democracy. Right? We're in a democratic republic. Everybody just, their civics just fell out their head on the floor when I said that. It's a democracy. I'm pro-democracy. I'm pro-capitalism. I'm pro-free market. I'm pro-small government. I'm pro-government not telling me how to run my life. 
But the greatest system is a theocratic monarchy. The greatest system of government is when Christ will sit upon the throne himself. It's going to be accepted right. His spirituality is spoken of. The Bible says God hath anointed thee. Uh, and then finally, I've got to move on. His vivacity is spoken of. It says that uh, God has anointed him with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. By the way, I think when it says, when it's speaking about fellows, it's speaking in the context of the kings and rulers of, of Israel. Uh, some of them were miserable. Some of them were magnificent. But none of them compared to Lord Jesus Christ. And his righteousness, that when he talks about the oil of gladness, that word gladness is used uh, all through the New Testament. It's the same word that's used when he talks about John the Baptist leaping in the womb for gladness, the sound of, of Mary's voice. And it denotes the idea, this is going to upset some people's theology, but it denotes the idea of leaping and of dancing. And what it means is this, that Christ's kingdom is going to be a rejoicing kingdom. We might as well get, get used to expressive, joyful worship. Because that's what's going to be the order for heaven, and that's what's going to be ordered for the kingdom that's here on earth. So we see the glory of Christ's person is spoken of. Luke verse number 10, the glory of Christ's power is spoken of. The Bible says, Now, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. Notice, first off, he founded the earth. I'm not going to dwell on that because we talked about it. But remember, he's using Old Testament scripture to substantiate, to validate the points that he's already given and will give. He's saying that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ who laid the foundation of the earth. Then notice number two, the fashion of the heavens. The heavens are the works of thy hands. Now here's where this really begins to take root. We see the glory of Christ's power, but notice then the glory of Christ's permanence. He has created all these things, but he is far superior to these things. Why is he superior? Why is he, again, here's this buzzword, better than these things? Why? Verse number 11. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they shall all they all shall wax old as doth the garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Why is it important for the Old Testament Jew to place his faith in Christ? Because the Old Testament system was fading away. And by the way, it has. Uh, you won't find a, an Old Testament style Jewish temple sitting in Jerusalem right now. Right now, actually, there's a, a Muslim mosque sitting where the, the Jewish temple should sit. It's the Dome of the Rock. Uh, the Jews are not out offering sacrifices. You know why? They can't even find a red heifer to offer to purify themselves to be able to give any sacrifices. They, the whole nation, are unclean right now. That Old Testament sacrificial system is fading away. But guess who's not faded away? The Lamb of God has not faded away. The Son of God has not faded away. Uh, the, the kings of Israel may not be on their throne anymore. They don't have a king. They've got old BB. He's a prime minister. God bless him. I believe God uses him in some way. I don't believe he's a godly man, but I believe God protects him and uses him in some way. Uh, but they don't have a king anymore. The throne has been torn down. Rome trampled upon their sovereignty. All that's gone. But guess who's still sitting on the throne today? The Son of God. It's interesting what he talks about about the heavens. He says he's created all these things, but they're all fading away. One of the interesting things I came across, I studied this, I don't know if you realize this, but did you know that the sun is losing 4,200,000 tons of heat every second? The universe is winding down and winding with love. If God was to tarry his coming indefinitely, then the universe would literally just fold in on itself. Time is slowing down. By the way, that's part of the reason I believe in a young earth. I don't believe that the earth is millions of years old. 
And, and scientists, good scientists, will tell you the same thing. You say, how do you know that? Because if the earth was millions or billions of years old, the sun would have burned out and fell out of the sky by now. Uh, the momentum of the planets would have been thrown off kilter. They would have been hurled out of orbit. They would not continue to spin in place. There is a clock winding down on this creation. But guess what's never going to wind down? The throne of God. The Son of God. The scepter of God. They'll all wax old. I like the way it says this. As a vesture shall thou fold them up. One of these days, Christ said, the Lord is going to destroy the heavens and the earth. He'll create a new heaven and a new earth, not, not stained by sin, uh, not marred by corruption. And it will last forever. But the one that we have now is fading away. Now, I want you to notice the next thing. We skipped over a lot right there because we had to. Amen. Look at verse 13 and 14. We see the glory of Christ's position. Now, we've talked about the glory of His person, of His power, of His permanence. Notice the glory of His position. Verse 13. But which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Now remember, we're at the beginning of a very long argument that the book of Hebrews is laying out. And it is begun by noting that Christ had, that uh, Christ is a better expression of the will and mind of God than the Old Testament system of sacrifice was. He has moved on to say that Christ is better than the Old Testament angels. Uh, they were considered the most powerful beings. The Old Testament Jew were the angels. That's the reason every time an angel showed up in the Old Testament, uh, people would instinctively fall to their face and begin to try to worship before them. By the way, you know that every time in the Bible, somebody tried to worship an angel, they always told them, get up, don't worship me. You say, but preacher, there are times I read in the Bible where somebody worshipped the angel of the Lord and he didn't stop them. Well, the reason is because in the Old Testament when it talks about the angel of the Lord, that's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in the New Testament, when John speaks to an angel and he falls down at his face and starts to worship the angel, the angel says, get up! I'm just like you. I'm just like you. Get up! Don't worship me. Worship the Lamb that was slain, but don't worship me. And so there was, this, there was this sort of aura and this, this, this concept and this fear and this awe that the Old Testament Jew had towards angels and they sought to worship them. And uh, at the beginning of this long argument, he's going to go on and talk about Moses, he's going to talk about the priesthood, he's going to talk about the sacrifices, he's going to talk about the, uh, the tabernacle, he's going to talk about the covenant, but he's began with the most basic elemental portions of the Jews' religion. He's talked about the expression of God, the revelation of God, and he's talking about the angels. What does he say in verse number 13? He says, number one, uh, that Christ's position is absolutely unique. Notice it again. To which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies, I put so. You know what you'll find? And you know, the Bible's full of rhetorical questions. I love it. This is a rhetorical question. You know what the answer is? None. He never said that to any of the angels. There was no place at the right hand of God the Father for the angels. There was only room for one person at the right hand of the Father, and that's God the Son. It's the only person. Uh, when you look at the picture of heaven, and, and I love, and I love going to the Bible and see pictures of heaven. When people saw the, the throne room, the presence uh, in God's heaven. I, I'm fascinated when God uh, brings Isaiah up in the Spirit and shows him the throne room. I, I'm fascinated when uh, in Revelation, John gets a glimpse in the throne room. But you know where you always find the angels? In fact, you know where you find everybody except one person? They're always gathered around the throne, bowed in worship to the Lord. There's only one person you ever find in the book of Revelation that in the presence of God is standing. It's in Revelation chapter number 5. 
The Bible, you know what John said? He saw, he said, I saw a, a lamb as it were slain, standing. Standing. Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying there's not a reverence and respect that Christ has for the Father. The Bible says that all things will be delivered up to the Son and He'll deliver all things up to the Father. But only the Son of God has the right to stand in the presence of God the Father. He has a unique position. It's absolutely unique. Look at verse number 14. It's absolutely unchallenged. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Only one time did an angel ever try to challenge God for his throne, and he was kicked out of heaven flat out. That was Lucifer. The angels that are there now, they know better. <laughs> There's a lot of history around angels, and I understand that. I think we can get distracted sometimes studying angels, but since we're talking about it, since it's organic to the text, uh, there's a lot of mystery about angels. It, it appears now that angels do not have a free will. Evidently, at one time they did, because Satan had a free will. Uh, he certainly went contrary to the will of God, and a third of the angels of heaven followed and were cast out as well. And so evidently, there was a time when angels had free will. I don't know if they don't have free will now or if they just know better. But I do know this, that the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ is not under any threat to be usurped by an angelic being. The most powerful angel that heaven ever knew tried it and was cast out immediately. The throne of the Lord Jesus Christ is completely and absolutely unchallenged. You know why? Because angels are not meant to rule. They're not meant to reign. Even in the millennial kingdom, the angels aren't going to be reigning. You know who's going to be reigning? Christ will be on the throne. But then you and I that have been saved by His grace. If we've been faithful... Will be reigning with him. Angels were not designed to reign. They were not built to reign. If you don't believe me, look at Satan. He's the god of this world, right? Is this world doing well or is it in a mess? Angels are not built to reign. They're not meant to. They are ministering spirits. And who are they sent to minister to? This is interesting. Who they're sent forth to minister for them who shall be the heirs of salvation. The angels, listen now, this is going to mess you up. You're going to go home, you're going to cancel your subscription to Guidepost and the Reader's Digest. You're going to get rid of all the Hallmark movies about angels, I'm telling you. But you know that they're lower in rank than you or I. Now, I'm not saying that I'm as righteous as an angelic being right now. I understand that. But I have a position within the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's far superior to any which the angels have. They're sent to minister to them that are the heirs of salvation. Now, if they're below those that are the heirs of salvation, where does that put them in respect to him who is the captain of our salvation? Put the Hebrews going to talk about him later on. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the captain of our salvation. So angels don't hold the candle. Let me give you one final thought. Well, I don't know, about 17 final thoughts. I'll hear you. <laughs> I was supposed to be here 15 minutes ago. Look at chapter number 2. Now, I believe we move through this quick, and here's why. Because this is the first warning passage. You remember I had you write down five different warning passages? Look at verses 1 through 4. Therefore, now that word therefore is connected, right? It's saying we have all this truth we've been talking about, and in light of that, therefore, because of that, what should we do? Remember, five warning passages relating how we treat truth. How should this Jewish individual, or how should you write, even as Gentiles, if we don't know the Lord, how should we react in light of this? Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, 
which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with divers miracles, and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Here is the basic overall thing. Uh, we talked about uh, in this uh, study how uh, we saw the expression of the sonship of Christ. We saw the examples of the sonship of Christ. Now we know that there is an experience of the sonship of Christ by men. How should humanity respond to these truths? Number one, we must appropriate the gospel. In other words, how should this Jewish individual that's reading this, how should he respond? Well, he should respond by accepting the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he should respond. Uh, notice the warning that's presented in verse number one. It says we should give the more earnest heed to things which we have heard, lest any time we slip and slip. That word slip is interesting. You know what it means? It means for something to passively float by. A lot of people, when they read this and they see that list, we should let them slip, they think of like a transmission. They must drive the same kind of car as I do. And they think of like a transmission slip. And they think what the, what the writer is saying to the person reading is, hey, you better shape up. You better do right. You better not let these things slip or you're going to be in trouble. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this. These things have been presented to you. Don't let them slip by. Don't let them float by you. You've been presented with truth. You've been presented with reality. Don't let it float by. Don't let them slip. Don't let them slip through your fingers and slip away. You've been given truth. There's a warning that is presented. But notice there's a warning that's pressed on us. Now, you better not let them slip. Why? Look what it says in verse number 2. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast in every transgression, disobedience received a just recompense or reward. It's talking about the Old Testament. The Old Testament, if people broke the law, there was a severe penalty. And no doubt this Jew would have said, Amen to that. You've got to remember, they're being tempted on one side of the Old Testament law. And one of the things that's kept them in line is fear of what would happen if they departed from it. Fear of what would happen if they didn't keep the Sabbath. Fear of what would happen if they, if they didn't keep the dietary laws. And the writer says this, well, hey, listen, if there was a just recompense or reward for those things, they were just spoken by angels. Notice verse 3, how shall we escape? If we neglect so great salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard. He's saying this, you respect the Old Testament law, that's good. But how much more should we respect the New Testament covenant that's been given by the Lord Jesus Christ? We must appropriate the gospel. Finally, I'm done. We must appreciate the gospel. Notice the way it is conveyed to us. How did we hear about it? It first began to be spoken by the Lord. Uh, I thought this was interesting, that every New Testament truth was first presented to us in embryonic form in the ministry life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not do away with the Old Testament law. He expanded on it and fulfilled it. The Old Testament law said, Thou shalt not kill. But Christ opens His mouth with authority and reveals to us that sin is not just a physical abuse, but the hatred of the heart. The Old Testament, you weren't to commit adultery. But Christ says unto us, He says, But I say unto you, that if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery with her already. All through the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll find an embryonic form, meaning what? Meaning an encapsulated form. What do the New Testament epistles do? They hash out and expand and expound that truth to us. But in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find all these truths in embryonic form presented to us. It first began to be spoken by the Lord. There's uh, the, the Bible says, and I want you to notice these two things, it's conveyed to us, but it's confirmed for us. Now how? Confirmed to us, number one, by the truthful witness of the disciples. It was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. When we read the word of God, we are reading first-hand accounts 
So people that ministered, that walked with the Lord for three and a half years. Now I understand Paul didn't in his flesh. I understand Timothy. But when we read the Gospels, and that's what these truths are given in light of, is the Gospels relative to Old Testament Scripture. We're hearing the witness of the disciples. Then notice, and I'm done, the threefold witness of the deity of God. Not only do we take the disciples' word for it, but notice there are three ways in which uh, God has borne witness to the truth of the Son of God. It says, God also bearing them witness. I think this is interesting. It says, both with signs and wonders, and with divers miracles, and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to His own will. Did you know that God bore witness to all three groups of people in the world? Now, I don't have time to deal with all of it, but do you know that there are three groups of people in this world? not poor people, rich people, and middle class. It's not white people and black people and other people. It's not, it's not men and women and people that don't know what they are. That's not that. There's three groups of people in this world. Jews, Gentiles, and the church. So everybody in this world is part of one of those three groups. You're either an unsaved Jew, you're an unsaved Gentile, or you're a saved child of God and part of the New Testament church. And all three of these people he bore witness. Notice the first way to the Jews he bore witness with signs and wonders. You remember Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians that the Jews require a sign. And all through the Old Testament they were looking to the heavens to get a sign. They were looking to this and that to get a sign. Well, God bore witness with a sign on Calvary, didn't he? Uh, the heavens were darkened. The earth quaked. The veil was rent. God gave plenty of signs and wonders. Not only signs and wonders, but Gentiles, they seek after a, a miracle. <laughs> Uh, the Jews want a sign, but the, the Greeks, they seek after wisdom, they seek after a miracle. Well, Jesus performed plenty of miracles to exemplify that he and express that he was the Son of God. And then finally, uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit. He's a witness to the church through the presence of the Holy Ghost that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Hey, listen, and, and I won't be careful how I say this, but if you want to know whether Jesus is the Son of God, just ask your Christian. Amen. They got the Holy Ghost in them. Yeah. They, they, there's a witness within me, and if you're saved within you, that bears testimony yeah. to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, God in the flesh. He is the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So it's a far better way than the Old Testament uh, system of revelation or than uh, angels that were given in the Old Testament.